are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Good morning, Faith Church. My name is Darlene. My name is Marlene. Today we'll be reading Philippians 2, 1-11. Por tanto, si hay alguna consolación en Cristo, si algún consuelo de amor, si alguna comunión del Espíritu, si algún efecto extrañable, si alguna misericordia, completad mi gozo, sintiendo lo mismo, teniendo el mismo amor, unánimes, sintiendo una misma cosa. Nada hagáis por contienda o por vanagloria, antes bien con humildad, estimando cada uno a los demás como superiores a él mismo, no mirando cada uno por lo suyo propio, sino cada cual también por lo de los otros. Haya pues en vosotros este sentir que hubo también en Cristo Jesús, el cual, siendo en forma de Dios, no estimó el ser igual a Dios como cosa a que aferrarse, sino que se despojó a sí mismo, tomando forma de siervo, Hecho semejante a los hombres, y estando en la condición de hombre, se humilló a sí mismo, haciéndose obediente hasta la muerte, y muerte de cruz. Por lo cual, Dios también le exaltó hasta lo sumó, y le dio un nombre que se sobre todo nombre, para que en el nombre de Jesús se doble todo el día de los que están en los cielos y en la tierra y debajo de la tierra. Y toda lengua confiese que Jesús Cristo es el Señor para gloria de Dios Padre. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Faith Church. I'm Pastor Joey. I, I, I know I've told some of you all about the church that I grew up in. I uh, decided to follow Jesus when I was in second grade at a little church uh, just across the street from our house. It, it was a Small church, but in a bigger family of churches, and, and they often, you know, as, as I got older and started paying attention to the teaching, they often uh, preached a message that I resonated with. Maybe some of you have heard the saying put this way, uh, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, freedom, and in all things, love. Have you heard that before? It's basically saying like, hey, there's important things for us to agree on, and we need to agree on those, but there's other things that are less important. We should be free to disagree, and no matter whether we agree or disagree, we should love one another. The only problem with that is what counts as essential? The, the church that I accepted Jesus in definitely had uh, essentials, uh, that Jesus is really God, that people are sinful and can't save themselves, that the Bible teaches us everything we need to know in order to have a relationship with God, that Jesus will one day come back to rescue his church, uh, and that going to see a movie in the movie theater is sinful, and uh, playing games with a standard deck of playing cards uh, is wrong. Um, that uh, Moody Radio is probably a little too progressive to be healthy, that, that the only music um, acceptable for worship is four-part harmonies with a piano or organ accompaniment, none of the, none of the rest of this, right? Uh, that um, you're definitely flirting with heresy if you cooked any dish with wine in it or anything like that. Anybody else grow up in a, a church like this? Okay, just me. Awesome. Great. 
Great, well, now you know why I am the way I am. <laughs> and, and, I mean, this was a church that taught, if you could agree to all of those things, then yes, in essentials, unity. And in everything else, freedom to go worship somewhere else. Find a church that uh, is willing to tolerate your mistakes and the things that you're doing wrong. <laughs> See, it, it was a church that had, had done what a lot of churches, a lot of organizations inevitably do, is it, it had traded unity for something that looks like unity but isn't. They traded unity for uniformity. Uniformity is easy. You just kick out everyone who disagrees with you and boom, you've got it. Look, unity, you don't even have to fight for it. Uh, but they had taken, because they had taken you know, things that reasonable Christians can disagree on and elevated it to the level of essential, like this you have to agree on, they had traded unity for uniformity. In other words, be like us or leave us. Now, it may sound like I'm, I'm razzing on just one particular church, but Really, that's not an attitude that is only limited to one small church in Iowa or a family of churches in the Midwest, is it? No. I mean, we live in a world that is telling us constantly, you are welcome here if, and there's a long list of things you have to agree with or behaviors you need to accept or things you need to do or things you agree not to talk about or against or for or et cetera, et cetera. Each of those institutions, organizations, churches, whatever, is trading something difficult, unity, for something easy, uh, uniformity, because the, the bottom line core essential that brings them together isn't something deeper than all of them. It's just something they can all agree to. And we're taking uh, the next few weeks to walk through Philippians chapter 2 uh, because in this passage, in Paul's appeal to the unity of the church at Philippi to fight for unity, he goes deep to find that essential, that core, that foundation that can bring together people of different races, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different genders, uh, different nationalities together around one thing. I don't know about you all, but it feels like uh, 2020 is maybe the year for us to spend some time here at the end of it talking about unity, about what unites us. Um, I saw a t-shirt yesterday that said, 2020, one star, would not recommend. Because we've spent the whole year being, being told and hearing over and over again about all the things that divide us. But in Advent, as it's become our habit to jump into one passage four times, read it through the, the whole Bible storyline of creation, fall, redemption, Recreation, you know, the, the Bible's basically in four big parts of God created the world perfect. We fell away from it. He, after numerous different ways of trying to draw his people back, he ultimately sent Jesus to redeem us and will one day make it new again. Using that storyline of the whole Bible, we're jumping into Philippians 2 four times to read Paul's call to unity in the church through that lens. 
Because Paul does exactly that in this passage. He tells us, hey, we've got to look backwards to creation to see how we were created for unity. We need to look inwards to ourselves to see how our own selfishness has broken the unity that we were supposed to have. We need to look crosswards to see how Jesus has reconciled us, brought us together, and ultimately look forwards to see how God will one day bring us together again in unity. So we're going through this passage four times. Uh, creation, fall, redemption, recreation. This week, of course, is the first week, so we'll start at the beginning with creation. And we're going to take Philippians 2 and read it through this lens of what do we learn about the nature of God in creation that points us towards, supports this unity that Paul is calling us towards. Uh, we'll put the key idea up on the screen there for you so that if you're a uh, pulling out your Bibles and turning to Philippians 2, or you're taking notes on something, uh, you can write this down. To come together, to come together in unity, uh, we have to look backwards. We have to begin by looking backwards to find something so deeply essential that it pulls us together despite the differences in our opinions, some of our beliefs, our practices, our political leanings, our socioeconomic levels, or education, or any of the other things. If we're going to come together as a church at the end of 2020, we need to start by looking backwards. So Philippians 2, if you haven't turned there yet, turn there now. This, like I said, is a passage about unity. I think often that gets lost because we, we, we go through the first few verses pretty quickly because we want to get to verse 6 and 7, 5, 6, 7, and on down through 11 because some of your Bibles may set them apart at like with different indents to try to indicate that it's maybe poetry. It's a hymn about Jesus, possibly. And it's this, I mean, it's soaring poetry. It's this great stuff. But Paul kind of ramps up to these verses in a call to unity. Look back at the beginning of the chapter. Verse 1, he says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy— in other words, if you care about me at all in Jesus, as, you know, the guy who planted your church— then, verse 2, complete my joy. How? By being unified. I grew up with four younger brothers, still have them all, in fact, which is a surprise given how disunified we were growing up, each with our own opinions and very vocal about it. We didn't <laughs> so much live in a house as we lived in a war zone. Um, some of you may have grown up in a house like that. When we would ask our mom, hey, what do you want uh, for Christmas? She would just put her head in her hands and say, for you guys to get along. And Paul's doing something similar here. He's, he's looking at a church that has this infighting going on. He's like, you, you guys, you're my spiritual kids. I, I planted this church. I, I want you to be united, unified around what's most important, the gospel. And so he says, look, if, there's, if, there's, if you care about me at all, then complete my joy. Here's what would make me happy. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. He's calling for unity in, in four different ways, and each one of these phrases could be a sermon all by itself. Um, so obviously all I can do is summarize here, but be of the same mind. Think the same. Now, that doesn't mean think identically. He's not calling us to uniformity. Uh, later in, the, in this uh, particular letter, letter, he'll talk about what do you do when you disagree? But he's saying, no, think at least in the same direction, the same way. It has more to do, it's more than just intellect. 
uh, the emotion, attitude, your will, what you want to have happen is also involved in this, wor- this word, uh, think. Um, a, a better way of, or, or maybe I shouldn't say a better way, but you know a way of translating that would illuminate it a little bit more is to say something like, complete my joy by having an attitude of unity. Of, of inclining your wills towards unity, of of your emotions automatically dragging you towards, pulling you towards wanting to be together. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Love the same things in the same order. Love Jesus most, in other words, and you'll find it a lot easier to love yourself less and your opinion less. It's, it's easier to be unified when we don't take ourselves quite so seriously. We love something bigger than us more, isn't it? So be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord. Literally, the word is uh, be one-souled or sold together. Have your souls so knit together by what draws you together that, that to, to, to rupture your unity, to break fellowship, would be like ripping a soul in half. That's how closely tight and knit together you should be. And finally, he says, be of one mind. Be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord, and be of one mind. The, the, the one thing I want you to think about, the one thing I want you to focus on is the gospel, the good news that Jesus died to bring enemies together. So what does it mean to be unified, to have unity within the church? It's, it's well, he describes it in verse 2 there. To have a, a will and an affection toward unity, to feel that, that breaking of the fellowship is a ripping of your soul in, in half, to be so drawn to Jesus that you're even drawn to your enemies who are drawn to Jesus. But of course, he doesn't go on and just say, all right, so now go do that, right? Uh, now that I've described it, do it. No, he, he, he looks backwards, Right? To come together, we're going to have to look backwards. That's what he does. Verse 3, verse 4, we'll look at those more next week. He says, here's what you're not supposed to do, but in verse 5, here's what we do in order to have this attitude. Uh, look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. Have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, gave himself. Paul says, I want you all to have this mind, have this uh, attitude among yourselves, among all of you all, everyone who's hearing this letter read and explained, whether you're a leader in the church or it's the first time you've walked through the doors, whether you're mature or maturing, this is the attitude that is supposed to uh, describe, that, that is supposed to be possessed by all of us within the church have this attitude. And and you may ask, well, which attitude, uh, Paul? Well, of course, part of it is looking back at verse 2. He just described it. Here's the attitude. United in mind, united in heart, united in soul. That's the attitude I want you to have. But it's also an attitude, he says, that it it looks forward. Back in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you have a different translation, it may say it a little bit differently. It's because they're all trying to 
figure out how to represent what's going on in the Greek that's behind this. Uh, and so you may have one that says something like, you should have the same attitude that Jesus had. Or Jesus's attitude is available to you. You can have it too. Have this mind, have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Uh, in other words, if you want to know what unity looks like, how that verse 2 description is played out in real life, he says, look to Jesus. Look at what Jesus did. Now, not, not just in the sense of like, oh yeah, Jesus was a nice guy. Maybe unity is just all about being nice to people. He said, no, look, look at what Jesus actually did. And I want to flip to another passage just briefly. If you want to join me there, I'm going to Matthew 10. Because um, I want to look just for a moment, then we'll come back to Philippians. It's something that, that Jesus actually did, how he uh, created unity within his own group of guys. Um, you know, the 12 apostles, the 12 guys who followed Jesus around for three years straight. They, uh, they stayed with him, they traveled with him, they ate with him, they learned from him. They basically spent three years straight with him. And uh, after, or here in verse, or chapter 10, uh, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is about to send them out into a, a sort of a short, short-term mission trip, a little ministry jaunt. And so in chapter 10, we get the names of the 12. Verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Ze Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And I'd never really noticed the, the tension that is inherent in that list until I'd heard a, another pastor describing it a few weeks ago, uh, highlighting just two of these guys, Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Could not have been more different. Matthew, the tax collector, is, uh, well, he's a tax collector. No one liked the tax collectors. In, in fact, the worst, one of the worst insults that was thrown at Jesus was that he ate with tax collectors and sinners. They're basically the same thing. Because the tax collectors were Jewish individuals who, in order to make a living, they colluded with the Roman imperialist occupying government to extract taxes from their own brothers, their own kin, and took a little extra off the top for themselves. So these were guys who were willing to work with uh, the, the oppressors from outside in order to benefit themselves, imperialists, basically. And then on the far other side, you've got Simon, Simon the Zealot. Uh, the Zealots were the nationalists, the Israel first guys who hid out in the hills and picked off various uh, Roman guards whenever they got the chance and thought they could get away with it. These were the guys who felt that the violent overthrow of Rome was exactly what the Messiah was coming to do. Uh, these were the guys who resorted to violence and bloodshed because they wanted to defend what they thought was right. So you've got an imperialist sellout and a nationalist guerrilla fighter who followed Jesus around together for three years. One guy writing uh, on this passage, uh, he puts it this way. He says, at any other occasion, these men would have been ready to stick a knife into each other. Like both would have thought it was their moral duty to kill the other, but here they are all part of one group around Jesus. 
And that's just one example from the Gospels. We could keep reading the Gospels and see how Jesus brought together religious leaders and people of ill repute. He welcomed Jew and Gentile alike. He ate dinners with sinners. He had breakfast with unclean people. He brought together the the contagious and the dirty and the poor and the wretched and the rich and the powerful and the elite around the same table. Paul says if... He's appealing to the church saying, look, guys, there's one important thing. There's one essential I want you to focus on. And if you would focus on that, then you would be able to find the unity that makes that essential thing plausible to people outside of this gathering. It's like, focus on this, that Jesus came to bring enemies together. Look at how he did it. Look at his mind, his attitude with which he lived his life, you can have that same attitude yourself. So Paul writes to the church and he says, hey, if we're going to come together, we've got to look backwards. Look backwards at what Jesus has already done. You can see what he was like and you can know what you're being called to do. Uh, But of course, we've only looked at verse 5. Paul continues to actually work further backwards in verse 6. Turn back to Philippians chapter 2, if you're not already back there. See, because in in verse 6, Paul goes even further back, before Jesus' death, before his life and ministry. Uh, He goes back to creation itself. So let's get a run run up to this verse. Uh, Verse 5, have this mind, have this attitude among yourselves. You should have the same attitude as Jesus does who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And this is the point where that great hymn starts, the poetry that's often offset, that that tells of, of Jesus emptying himself out of heaven into humanity, submitting himself into the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of dying on the cross. Uh, And Paul says, at the start of this poetry, makes the point before Jesus became human, before uh, what theologians call the incarnation, Jesus becoming man, before that, Jesus was in the form of God. You saw it there in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God. Or another translation may say he was in very nature God. They're both trying to get at this same point that Paul's making, that Jesus is and always has been and always will be from before time into eternity. He is God. When it says in the form of God, that doesn't mean he just sort of looked like God or maybe if you squinted a little bit, you could mistake him for God or that he had the same shape of God. It's, it's saying, no, this is his very essence. Jesus is God. And being in the form of God, this is the point that Paul's trying to make. Being God, he didn't think equality with God, that of being God as a thing to be grasped. It's there at the end of verse 6. He didn't consider it as something to be held on to, a position to be protected by any means necessary, as something to be uh, used to his own advantage. Uh, you've all known leaders, right? A boss or a teacher, a parent, or even an older sibling that has used their, their power and their position to, to 
serve themselves or get a little something extra. Even if, you know, you're, the, you're a sibling who had an older sibling babysit you, like you saw it happen, right? As soon as they were in charge and mom and dad left, you're like, absolute power corrupts. But not so with Jesus. Uh, he possessed absolute power, absolute position and authority. Uh, he possessed it but didn't exploit it didn't use it as a, uh, as a way to get what he wanted. There was, no, there was no like, hey, I'm God. I can do what I want from Jesus. In other words, Paul's saying Jesus didn't consider the fact that he's God as a get-off-the-cross-free card. I mean, it, it wasn't his ticket to exempting himself from uh, emotional engagement with his creation. He didn't figure on being God as a way of excusing himself from the task of suffering and death. It actually goes much deeper than that. Uh, being God didn't exempt him from suffering. It actually uniquely qualified him for that suffering. Look back at the beginning of verse 6. It says, uh, my, the ESV that I'm reading from here says, who... So Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, and it's maybe tempting to read it as, um, like as a concession, you know, like the Paul's trying to say, well, even though Jesus was God, and he's like, well, I'm all powerful, and I, you know, all that stuff, and he didn't try to wriggle his way out of it. He's like, well, if no one else is gonna, you know, no one else is gonna sacrifice themselves, I guess I'll do it. Now, Paul's not saying that Jesus is going, well, if somebody has to, I guess it might as well be me. No, this, this is a cause and effect relationship here, that Jesus Maybe even if you're okay with writing in your Bible, scratch out the word though and write because. Christ Jesus who, because, precisely because he was in the form of God, precisely because he is God, he didn't count equality with God as something to be taken advantage of, something to be held on to, something to be protected at all costs. You see the difference? Because Jesus is God. He emptied himself. Because Jesus is God, he gave up that equality with God. Said, no, I'm not going to use that to get out of the hard work. In other words, this is what it means to be God. This is what God is essentially like. Be precisely because Jesus was God, he emptied himself out of heaven into humanity, became a servant for all, died for all. Right? He didn't do it because he had to, because no one else would. He did it because that's what God does. And that's the attitude that Paul says leads to unity in the church. Unity in spite of disagreement, deep unity around this core essential that, that this is what God is like. This is what God has done. If you're looking to unity, or looking for unity, if you're looking to appeal for unity to convince a group of people that, hey, the things that bring them together are bigger than the things that separate them, then Paul says, well, we're going to have to go really deep to find that core bedrock. And he goes all the way back to creation, to the very nature of God himself. 
what we see is a God whose essential nature, his essential character is one of self-giving, self-sacrifice, who moves towards the very ones who run away from him, who moves towards the ones who rebel against him and tell him, you're not welcome here. The, the deep unity of the church is built on the character, the nature, the, the attributes of God himself from creation. See, if we and, and all around us are, are created by a God like that, whose very nature compels him to disadvantage himself for the sake of us, if we're created by a God like that, then what unites us is worship of a God like that. If we look backward and see that God, how can we not come together? Regardless of all of our differences, our language differences, our political differences, our socioeconomic differences, our uh, ethnic and racial differences, our gender differences, there is something so much deeper than all of that that brings us together, that unites us. So what are, what are we going to do? We've, you know, looked backwards in order to come together. What are we going to bring back into the present into today uh, for this week? Uh, a, a few ideas, uh, basically a couple of questions for you to ask yourself. Um, first question is, what are your essentials? What are your essentials? What do you believe is so essential that you would be willing to break unity over it? Now, and don't get me wrong, I do believe that there are essentials. I have been on one side of the desk while on the other side I've had to tell someone like, I'm sorry, but you can't teach here. When you say God, you mean someone other than the triune God of the Bible. Like, that's essential. We are not compromising on the essential nature of God as triune, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're not compromising on the deity of Jesus, on his sacrifice for our sins, of his sufficiency to save us, or of Scripture's sufficiency to tell us about Jesus. We're, we're not going to compromise on those things, but... Going to see a movie? Does that really rise to the level of essential? What are, what are your essentials? What are the things that you are willing to, to separate from others or split from others, break unity about? And second question, um, this one's harder for me especially. Um, do, you, do you love unity more than being right? That pause was for the uncomfortable laughter to fill the room. Because uh, if I know many of you are like me, and yeah, I'd much rather convince you that I'm right than love you. I'd much rather uh, convince you to my perspective than love you in your perspective. But I, I don't think that's what we're, I don't think we're being allowed to do that here. Do you love unity more than you love being right? or let me put it another way, can you stand in this room or in your living room, can you stand next to someone who voted the opposite way you did and still sing, come thou long expected Jesus? 
and sing the goodness of God. And sing, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Can you stand next to someone who disagrees with you on everything you, you believe politically, let's say, and worship God with them? Do you love unity more than being right? All right, that one's too convicting. I'm going to move on from that one. Last one. Unity takes all of us, but it starts with each of us. Okay, unity takes all of us. It, it takes all of us in order to be unified, but it starts with each of us making the decision to say, okay, things I think are essential or maybe not, and I think unity is more important than being right. Therefore, I'm going to fight. I'm going to work towards unity. Unity takes all of us, but it starts with each of us. And it seems like at least now in 2020, as we run up to Advent, like now is the time for us to just, as a church, slow down and pay a little less attention to the things that divide us. and Spend a couple of weeks thinking about what unites us. What draws us together? I, I've, I've got these... Uh, Advent candles. I almost called it the unity candle, um, but this isn't a wedding. I've got these Advent candles up here. You know, it's our, it's our tradition to light one candle each week as we make our way through the Advent season, the four weeks leading up to Christmas. Uh, Advent, by the way, is just a word that means coming or arrival. So Advent is the season of the year where we look backwards at Jesus' coming uh, as a baby in Bethlehem, and we look forward to his second coming as our king one day to unite us together again. And uh, we light one, one a week. I'm going to go ahead and call this one, if I can light it. There we go. I'm going to call this one the creation candle. Four candles, four parts of the Bible storyline. It works. It's the creation candle. This is the one that reminds us to look backwards, to see the nature of the God who created us the God who will one day give himself for us, or who has, in our time, given himself for us, who, as we walk through this story, will give himself for us and will one day make uh, all things right and unite us together again eternally. I hope you'll journey with us uh, through these four weeks of Advent. If you, if you got one of the um, Advent devotionals, and there's more on the table downstairs, the uh, the readings and the scripture passages in here are all about uh, unity, about how we were created to be unified, but it was broken in the fall. Jesus came to reconcile us back together so that one day uh, we will live forever in perfect unity with him and with one another. Uh, grab one of those from downstairs. Um, and if you didn't get one in the mail, stop at the Welcome Center and let us know. It probably means we typed your address into the database wrong, uh, and we'd like to fix that, so let us know. Um, journey with us through the biblical storyline, the whole Bible story of creation, fall, redemption, recreation, as we spend four weeks at the end of quite a year to focus in on what unites us. Because unity is not found in uniformity of requiring everyone to think and believe and behave and act the same way, nor is it found in sorting ourselves into ever smaller groups of people who think the same way and just rejecting everyone who disagrees with us. 
Unity is found, and unity in the church is found when the deep essential of who God is and what he has done for us bonds souls together in spite of all of the surface-level differences in thought or attitude. That's what we'll be exploring for the next three weeks, and that's what we'll be pray- we'll, we will be praying to be true for faith. So pray with me. Father, we, we recognize that you have laid a difficult task before us in fighting for unity, by looking backwards to see who you are and how you created us, looking at ourselves to admit and acknowledge the ways that we ourselves are broken and break relationships around us, looking to Jesus to see his, his work in reconciling, reconciling us to him and one to another, looking forward to one day when you will set all things right and things will be one again. We admit it is easier to settle for a uniformity that betrays your desire for the church. May we be so drawn to you through the sacrifice of your son that all barriers and boundaries would be overcome and broken down and that the church may be one. We pray in Jesus' name.